Thank you for being here. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, open it up, turn it on to the letter of Ephesians towards the right side. If you've gone to like Revelation, James, you've gone too far, so you've got to go back to your left. If you don't have a Bible, uh, what I'm going to read will be on the screen behind me. We call it the Sky Bible, so that'll take care of all your needs. Before we get into today's sermon about the Christian home, I'm just going to lead us in prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that we get to come together once again on your day, on the day of rest, a day of worship for your church. Uh, we, uh, we thank you that right now our buildings looks as if we're celebrating the season where you come to dwell with your people, and we take no shame in that. We look forward to celebrating that season as a church. We're thankful that you came to dwell among us, that you are a God who is there, who's not far away, who does not keep his distance, but in fact one who sends his son into the world, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, to live among his people, to suffer as we have suffered, and then eventually take our place on the cross, satisfying the Father's wrath against all of sin. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Because what we believe is not because we were smart enough to receive it, but because you were gracious enough to allow us in. We are here today as people who are so undeserving of salvation, yet you've given it to us. We have not earned it. Our moral lists of good deeds are not long enough to accomplish it. We're sitting here humble people, humbled before your presence, before your word, and acknowledging that you are gracious and merciful and absolutely given us what we do not deserve. Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for the work that the Spirit has done in the lives of this church. We are imperfect people who worship a perfect God. We are not who we once were, that is true. We're not who we want to be, but by your grace we are who we are. And day by day we look forward to the way you are molding us and shaping us and conforming us into your image, into a people, a people who are a light of the world, a people who hold the message of the only hope for the world, a church of called out people meant for your glory, set aside to worship you, and then sent into the world to love our neighbors. Father, as we open the word, the Bible, the scriptures, we ask that it would just not convict us of what we're doing wrong, because it often does, but it would encourage us to know that you are a God who brings us along with you, who loves us enough to teach us and to transform us. Father, we know that what we're about to read, we cannot accomplish on our own. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this room and therefore fill the lives of your people so that they would be transformed into the image of Christ. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for providing for our church. Thank you for loving us even when we are so unlovable. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 5 Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. And what we're doing today is we're finishing up our study of what we call the Christian home. So this letter is six chapters long. We started it a long time ago and working our way through it. We've come to chapter 5, which is all about the home. Wives, husbands, children, people who work in the home. They're called bond servants. All these things Paul addresses in this young church way back in the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, a large city in, in Rome. Rome was this big empire. And there was this little church there. Paul started a church. People started believing in walking with Christ. And therefore, a little church like ours was formed. And so Paul instructs them of how to live, how to walk the Christian life. And so for the last seven or eight weeks, we've, we've put a, a bit of emphasis on what we've called the Christian home. Because that, that's what Paul is teaching us. What are, are the roles and responsibilities of a husband, of a wife, of children, and all that kind of stuff. And today we're going to end all that because next week we will actually end the letter. We're going to be done, which will bring us into the Christmas season. Um, clearly, it's upon us. So thank you for those who took time out of their week to get us ready for it. We don't, you know, we don't apologize for celebrating too early. We're all about Christmas. We love it. So we're going to get as much of it as we can. And the building looks amazing, does it not? Amen. Amen. And then next year, I want to give you just a little bit of glimpse of where we're going in 2020. Um, wow, 2020. I'm old enough I can say wow now. You know, when you're younger, like, why are these people so, like, amazed by the year? Like, I'm amazed by the year. Um, 2020, our church has taken a significant turn into understanding what the church is. So who are its leaders? What is it like to be part of a community of a church? And we're going to learn about all of that. 
If you have not known, we talk about it quite often, that there have been people, men specifically, who are walking through the process of being trained as an elder in a church. They've, they're on month 11 already. So for 11 months, they've had in-depth training, practical and formal, of what it's like to serve a church in a position of leadership, to shepherd them, to lay down their lives for them, to love them. And so by God's grace, on January, somewhere in January, we're going to pray over them and commission them as our first elders of this church, which we have not had yet. So everything we do as a church is kind of fun because we do it for the first time. So we're learning, we're growing, we're taking our time. And then once they're in place, we can talk about what it's like to be a community. It's often referred to as church membership. Some of us have some negative ideas of what that was because of other churches we've been a part of. Some of us have no idea what it is, and that's the fun part. So we get to walk through what it's like to commit ourselves to one another as a church. And many of you are already doing that by your actions, but this is a more spiritual commitment so that we can grow together as a body. You know, that's why local churches are so great, because what they do is they form a family of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who support one another. So that's our 2020, and that's going to be really exciting for us. But today, we are right back talking about those stinking kids, right? For the last three weeks, we've talked about children obeying their parents in the Lord, and we've kind of unpacked what it's like for children to obey, for parents to teach children to obey, and what that looks like in the home. And we've came to the last portion of those messages. So I'm going to read four verses, and I'm going to focus on just a few of those verses in chapter 6. I'm going to read the first four. So here we go. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now today, we will attempt to understand these two separate, you know, yet kind of connected, in-depth commands. Honor father and mother. Fathers, do not provoke. So I went a little bit over in the first service, okay? I'm a little. I always know when I understate something in this church. Um, a little is an understatement, but there was so much to give, and I try to give it all. But anyway, we're gonna, I'm going to try to give as much as I can, but those are the two categories we're going to discuss. What it's like to honor your father and mother, and then what it's like to fathers to not provoke children to anger, but instead bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Those are our two things we're going to accomplish today, all right? So right off, you can just observe that Paul is instructing children here, which is kind of cool, because Oftentimes, churches act like kids are out of the way. You know, they're in the way, they're little, they don't understand. But clearly, right now, Paul addresses children. I mean, children were meant to hear this. They were meant to receive this word. So it's children, obey your parents in the Lord. And so Paul's instructing children of the church. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, honor your father and mother. They're instructing them to honor their parents. Now, even that term, honor, honor father and mother. Some of us go back to sort of this cultural value that was maybe embraced in traditions of past, but we don't really talk about that stuff anymore, you know, honor and all those words that we don't like to talk about. We think that's actually for the past, but really it's a value, it's a, it's a command, and it's a promise from God for the here and now, even for your children today. And just in short, children are called to appreciate, to respect, and then demonstrate love and honor towards the father and mother or the father or the mother, because of who the father and mother are, right? And that's really important to teach our children. What you want to do is you want to teach them to honor the role of father and mother, regardless of who you are in that role, because let's face it, we're all not that great half the time. I stand before you as preaching a message of how to be a better father and an honorable father, and I fail all the time, and so do you, so you're in the right place. You're welcome. But we should teach children to honor father and mother. Children are to honor their father and mother because fathers and mothers protect, they take care of, they guard, they provide, they nurture, and they teach children, little humans who are going to grow up to be big humans, right? So they're under our care. They've been given to us as a blessing, and so we pretty much lay down our life for them, oftentimes imperfectly, but every parent generally desires to love their children. Now, I do want to spend some time with the topic of, um, and here's what the topic is. What, even when I say that, children honor your father and mother, 
many adult children in this room have already gone to a dark place because they don't believe their father or mother to be very honorable. Does that make sense? So what I want you to see is that this command cannot just be for four-year-olds. Does it make sense? Like, I get it. It's children. We think of little humans who are always sticky, right, and scream a lot. And that's, but that's not necessarily who this is only for because we here are children of someone. We're all children of someone. And so we are called to honor father and mother. Now, we do need to take some time to understand what it's like to be an adult child who, does, who wants nothing to do with their father and mother because, quite frankly, they weren't honorable. And we suffered under their care. And it was not fun. And it was painful. And friends, I acknowledge that this world is crazy and sinful. And there will be people who do not take the role of father and mother very seriously. And many of you here have suffered. We cannot gloss over that. We cannot make light of that. Because that's a real thing. Now, I can't apologize on behalf of anybody. I can only instruct you of what the Bible says. That, and I hope it would encourage you to not get stuck in this place of anger and bitterness, which we often do. This world is so saturated with sin. And because of this sin, children will suffer from neglect and abuse of many forms. Now, for those of you who are already put up your defenses, who are like, I am not going to listen to this guy because you haven't met my parents, pastor, man, preacher, guy. You don't know where I'm coming from. You cannot really tell me. I'm not there. That's okay. I'm not going to push you or force you into anywhere. But let me share this with you. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I would invite you in a minute to understand something. But if you are a Christian, just know that it's much more than just deciding to follow Jesus, knowing that your eternal salvation is secure, knowing what the Bible says is true, that you'll be resurrected from the dead, that we were made for so much more than this world has to offer. And we know that and we feel that and God makes that real to us. God is preparing us for a new kingdom. God is preparing us for a new life in Christ. That's one thing. But there's so much more to the Christian walk than just that. And a lot of times when we separate the here and now, what God wants us to do today from the future, what we end up doing is we separate a lot of the things that God wants to heal us for and from. So many of us have suffered from neglect or abuse from less than honorable parents. But if you are a new creation, if the old is gone and the new has come, like Paul says in chapter 3, if you are a follower of Christ... Let me remind you that you have been freed from the bondage of anger and bitterness that once defined your life. Many of us were there. We were so angry. We've been so bitter at the hands of those who have done us wrong, and our whole lives were dictated by those emotions. They drove everything. They dictated every move, every thought. They consumed our lives, and I'm here to tell you, I'm here to remind you that when Christ died on the cross, he took every sin with him to the grave. All the sins of mankind were poured out on Jesus. And when he went into the grave, all those sins went with him. But when he came back from the dead, he didn't bring any of that back with him. So he rises from the dead, and what he does not bring back is bitterness and anger and wrath for the Christian to hold on to. He kills it. It's done. It's gone. And what that means is the Christian can now walk in freedom. That's what we mean by that. We walk in freedom because what was once done to us does not define who we are in Christ. That matters. That's important. So no longer does bitterness and anger and wrath have an authority in your life. It doesn't have to dictate what you do, who you are, what you think. Because Christ has set you free. Now, does that mean you need to immediately forgive? Maybe. Does that mean you need to work on forgiving those who've done you wrong? I would say absolutely yes. What does that look like? I don't know. I have no idea because your situation is going to be different from every other person's situation in this room. And I don't know what it's like for you to be to the point where you can honor your father and mother, although you've suffered at their hand. Do you see where I'm getting at? When we read these things, we often reflect on what we have experienced, and it's hard for us to really understand what we're being asked to do. And that's one thing I would encourage you with. And what I'm not saying is just forgive and move on. What I am saying is that if you follow Christ, the truth is you have been legally set free, emotionally set free from all of that anger and that darkness. 
You've been given a new life, a new heart, and a new mind. And I do believe that that new work is so powerful in your life that it can free you from anger and bitterness. And it will if you trust in Christ. When will it happen? I don't know. Will it take 30 years? Maybe. Some of you are like, I ain't got 30 years. Will it take 20? Maybe. Will it take two? I don't know. But you see, church, just because something seems unattainable does not mean we stop losing hope in that thing. Amen? We don't lose hope. Now, let me bring this into focus then for children. You know, the stinky, sweaty, slimy ones that we care for? The ones who always want to eat their Halloween candy as soon as they get it? Those ones. What do we do with those kids under our care? How are we to teach them how to honor us? Now, we can observe that probably children heard this letter read in the church. They were probably around their parents, and so they heard it. They heard, children, obey your parents. Children, honor your father and mother. But I would say that although they heard it and know that it was a command, it really is up to the parents to figure out what to do with it, isn't it? When we, when we started this sermon, we said that godly parenting is following Christ in the presence of little ones who are following Christ. That's what godly parenting is. There's not a checklist. It's not a paint-by-numbers project. There's no secret formula. They don't come with instructions. Good luck, right? They just don't. Everyone is different, and they will react different than everyone else. Every child is different. But being a godly parent is simply following Christ in the presence of your children so they can see you follow Christ. And therefore, if children are to honor their father and mother, and you should want them to, it's a blessing for them. God says that it's a blessing, that it may go well with you, that it is a command with a promise. It's heavy. It's really heavy. And there's all sorts of Old Testament stuff that ties into this and all sorts of truths that Israel grabbed because of this. Because God knew when he set up his people and its society, if the family structure was disintegrated, his people would fold. He knew that. So I want you to know that as we encourage children to honor the role of father and mother and honor you, your role is to imitate honor for them. We learn by imitation. That's who we are. People learn by imitation. We learn by watching someone do or listening to someone say. That's what we do. We always learn by imitation. So children will show honor to those who honor them. Now, I'm not like turning it all back on you parents, but I mean, I kind of am secretly, like, but in a nice way, okay? Because I want you to see that you cannot just simply tell your kids to honor you if you don't in turn honor them. Now, it's not dependent upon that, but that certainly has something to do with it. If parents of young children are realizing that right now that maybe honor doesn't exist in the home and you're like, yeah, I don't know. Like, there's, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of arguments. They certainly don't respect me. I mean, they eat all the food I give them. I know they love that. But there's just, there's just a lot that happens that I don't really feel like they respect me. Then think about this. Are you treating them like children or are they an annoyance or a problem? Are they some little human that's just in your way? Now, you would say, well, of course not. They're my kids. Right. But do you treat them like that? More times than not during the day, are they in your way? And can you reflect on if you've actually shown them that by your actions? Do you treat them like a roommate? It's actually pretty popular these days for young kids to be treated like the roommate of the mom and the dad. Well, children are children. They need to be treated like children. And by the way, they love it. It's really fun, okay? The six-year-old isn't like, give me my own space and treat me like an equal. They're not really screaming that, right? I mean, if they are, they heard it on a movie. But that's not really what they want. They want to be nurtured. They want to be cared for. They want you to laugh with them and find joy with them. They want you to instruct them. They want you to protect them from evil. They don't want you to cause them to sin. They want you to take responsibility for them. They want you to take charge of them. And they want you to lead them. And they want all that with really not even understanding how to say it. But here's a spoiler alert. Children are children. That's who they are. They're little humans who aren't grown up yet. So let's be careful to not treat them as grown-ups. I will get into how we can do that wisely in just a few moments, okay? So if you honor them as children, you will teach them how to honor you as father and mother. A statement I've made in my home a few times, we have 12, 10, 
uh, almost nine, seven, and almost four. <laughs> yeah, 12, 10. Yep, anyway, um, I think I'm right. Check with Sherry. And a lot of times when there's this point of tension, what I can often say as the dad is say, look, listen, buddy, or daughter, but they never get in trouble because they're perfect. It's usually, you know, so my daughters have, I don't know, last time I spanked them, they're perfect. I usually will say, listen, you can do it differently in the future. I get it. Right now, you do not agree with what dad is doing. I totally get it. And you're frustrated by it. And I hope you're a better daddy than me. Oh, man, I hope you're such a better daddy than me. I hope your kids love you more than you love me. That would be the goal. But right now, I'm the dad. You're the child. We have to honor the roles that we've been given. It's my job to lead you and discipline you and instruct you and love you. It's your job to respond in kind, to receive this, to learn from it, to grow in it. That, that's a common scenario you can play out in your house to remind them, oh, right, I am a child and you are the parent. Teach them to honor you by honoring who they are and reminding them who they are. And that's not even in a bad way, going like, you're the kid, be quiet. Not like that. It's like, well, what do you expect me to do? I'm here for a reason. I'm your parent. I love you. All right, so I want to pack all that up and put it to the side. Okay? That was kind of quick. There's a lot there. Every sermon I preach, I can make it into five, but you'd be super bored. So we're going to move on. Okay? So that's the first part of today's message. Honor your father and mother. I know it's tough for some of us, but it should be something we're instructing our kids to do. It should be language we're using so they understand it. Second, Let's do verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction in the Lord. Now, this little verse is packed with so much truth. Again, I cannot possibly explain all of it, which I'd like to explain in this sermon. So I'm gonna focus on two aspects. I'm gonna try to reduce it down for us, okay? What I'm about to do is share some things from a book of Proverbs. That is because... If you were to take this command seriously, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instruct them and discipline them. I believe there are two sides to this coin. There's a side A and a side B, and you need both of them to make a coin, right? So one's not more important than the other. They're just two separate but equal things to do when you're thinking about not provoking your children. Now, side A can be described in this way. On side A, uh, A's going to be my, life, my left, your right. Side A is a long list of things to stop doing. Fathers, by the way, this is to you. I'll explain why in a minute. Well, first of all, Paul already said it. I can't change it. So fathers, right? A long list of things to stop doing because you're provoking your kids to anger. You're, you're stirring up their emotions. You're getting them all worked up and frantic. There's a lot, a lot of things we can stop doing. But then side B are a long list of things we should be busy doing so that 15 years from now, they don't look back and go, dad never taught me that. Why, why didn't he tell me? Why are all my friends experiencing all this joy in this work ethic and they're doing stuff? And I, I was never told that. You see, you can provoke children in the here and now when they're young. And I'll explain how we do that and we want to stop doing that. But you can also provoke children 15 years from now. Here's a funny example of what I mean. All my friends hunt, most of them, Right? They're masculine, manly, I get it, right? You can shoot stuff, okay? But they all do it. And I grew up as a young man thinking, why don't I hunt? I mean, I can fish, right? I can, I can outfish anybody. But anyway, I can't hunt. And I was super frustrated by it because all my friends were like, you want to go hunting? And I was like, I don't even know what that means. What do you do? You sit out in the cold and shoot stuff? Well, you got to wear all this stuff that's super expensive too. I'm like, well, I'm not going. Can I just wear my clothes? No, they'll smell you. You're like, oh my word. Okay, so all my friends grew up hunting, and I didn't. And so, oh, by the way, my dad grew up as a target shooting tournament bow guy. Archer. <laughs> bow guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> You're like, John, don't even take up, the, don't even hunt. Just stop it. All right? <laughs> I'm going to go into the store and be like, hey, can I be a bow guy? They're going to be like, dude, get out of here. So, so my dad grew up shooting competition archery, which means he was good, like really good never took me hunting. And I'm thinking, dude, you could have been great. You could have been shooting these things from 80 yards away. And so I asked him one day, dad, everybody hunts. And I'm frustrated because I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to get started. I don't know the first thing to go kill a deer. And he's like, well, I didn't go hunting because I didn't want to stand out in the cold. And that was it. <laughs> I just didn't want to do that. 
See, now that's a funny situation of something that I was like frustrated by that my dad never showed me. But I would tell you, that's funny. But there are some really serious things that fathers neglect to tell their kids that provoke them to real anger in the future. All right, so that's side B. Now, there is a way that I preach, and I just want to make it explicit this morning. When I preach a sermon, I don't always qualify what I'm saying, which means I have to be able to speak and just move on without explaining everything of why I didn't say the opposite of what I just said. Does that make sense? I can't qualify everything. Because in our church, there are single moms and single dads, and they're carrying the entire load themselves. And so you're like, well, this says fathers, and there ain't no guy around, so it's just me. What does this mean for me? I don't really know. But you're carrying a lot, and we're here for you, and we love you, and we will support you. You should rely on your community for this. We are here for you. But I can't possibly explain both, so I'm just going to stick with just fathers. If you're a single mother, you can glean from this and do this in your home. But how you would specifically apply it, I don't know. I just want to get that out of the way. All right? Make sense? So side A, let's do, this. let's do it this way. Side A is a bunch of stuff fathers need to stop doing if they want to stop provoking their children to anger. Now, all of what I'm about to say can be found in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is in the middle of your Bible. It's called the wisdom literature. It's just a bunch of wise stuff, really good, solid stuff in the word of God. Believe me, when I give you things to do and not do, I didn't think of it from my own brain. Most of you already know, like, yeah, we're not giving you that much credit, right? So we highlight the Bible here, not my own mind, because I can't figure it out by myself. So everything I'm about to say is from the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is essentially a letter written by a father to a son. That's what it's for. And he's showing his son and explaining the world to his son and showing his son where to find wisdom and showing his son where the pitfalls are and explaining, hey, be careful there, be careful here. And I think we can take that entire book and apply it to this message. Now for side A, I just have one proverb to share with you and I'll break that down, all right? Proverbs chapter 15, verse one. Here's, if fathers are going to stop provoking kids to anger, here's one thing that fathers need to think about. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So a soft answer turns away wrath. It gets rid of wrath. It doesn't allow wrath to grow. A harsh word stirs it up. It intensifies anger. It builds anger. Now, we need to understand what are a few examples of a harsh word, I think. So if, what I'm saying here is that fathers, if you were to stop provoking your children, then you need to eliminate the harsh words in your conversations. I know this is hard, and I am far more guilty than you, ask my wife. But that does not mean that God cannot equally work on all of us this morning together. Amen? Remember, I got to prepare this sermon, so I've already been beat down to a pulp, all right, this week, and now I'm just giving it to you, all right? So... Um, Let's, let's think about this. If, if you desire to stop provoking your children to anger, if every one of your interactions, remember, during a situation of conflict, during a time where you're correcting them, right, or disciplining them or saying, hey, we, we don't want to do that. I need to show you a lesson here. If that ends up in a fight, in an angry, just sort of tizzy, there's some things I think that fathers can stop doing in order to stop that from happening. And this proverb helps us with that. So here's the first hard word that I think fathers can remove from the vocabulary. Really, it's not really a word. It's a tone. It's a tone of sarcasm. Some of you are super disappointed right now because sarcasm is your life and you love it. (laughs) A tone of sarcasm. I think that should be removed from a father's or a mother's, but a father's vocabulary. Fathers, save your sarcasm for your friends, like the ones who can actually take it because actually far few people can actually take it, but they love to give it. You know those people, right? You're sarcast- they're sarcastic all the time, but once you reply back, they're like, <laughs> you're like, geez, dude, you know, take it easy. But save the sarcasm for your friends and maybe adult children, because that's kind of fun sometimes. If you both get it, if you both understand it, that's it. But in the context of younger children as they're maturing or growing up, sarcasm is so dangerous because they cannot discern what you're truly trying to say. They don't get it. They're confused. Wait, I think you're angry but you're smirking and saying these weird things. Are you angry? Did I do something wrong? I don't know where I'm at with you. They cannot discern what's being said or where they stand. Fathers, let me tell you something very important. Your children should always know where they stand with you. Always. 
They're either good in your presence or they've failed you and you got to work on that. But never doubt how much it means for a child to be known like, I'm good with dad. I'm good. There's no hidden animosity. There's nothing he's angry about me for. Now, don't like create these like kids that are always wondering, are we good? Are we good? Are we good? You know, the person who always says sorry for nothing. You know those people. You're like, so sorry. You're like, you didn't do anything. <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm so sorry for saying, stop saying sorry. You know? You don't want to create that in your children. But they need to know where they're at with you. And I think sarcasm dilutes all that. It makes it very fuzzy. They don't get it. Children need to know where the relationship is, especially with fathers. They need to know and they need to feel secure under that protection of dad. They should not be left wondering what he's thinking about them. And sarcasm leaves them wondering what dad is truly thinking about them. They've know they, they know they failed you in that moment, but they don't really know if you're holding them accountable because you mentioned it, but it was passive with a weird smile and strange words that I've never heard before. Are you angry? Are you not? I don't get it. A tone of sarcasm is not healthy. And by the way, we all know this. I think sarcasm is just passive aggression. It's just you not being clear. I would even say in your marriage, we had a marriage thing a little while back, and I told the married couples there, just put it away in your marriage. Put it away. Don't bring it out. Until you both agree at what sarcasm is and when it's to be used. Because sarcasm will kill a marriage. It will. It leaves people wondering. Man, I was the worst until I realized this is killing my marriage. And so I stopped. No, she does it all the time. But she's learning to put it away too. All right, it's just back and forth. But sarcasm is really dangerous for a relationship. Right? You can speak winsomely. You can be funny without being sarcastic. It's possible. I know some of you. Many of you are. I've never heard you be sarcastic at all, but you're super funny. So if you desire for your children to build healthy relationships with you and with others, minimize the tone of sarcasm. I believe it is a harsh word. And I think it'll stir up anger, which will provoke them to resentment and anger. By the way, if you don't protect that, they're just going to grow up and mimic you. They're just going to, I know, that's so scary. They're just going to grow up and mimic you, right? That's what parenting's all about. That's what makes us all nervous. If they mimic your sarcasm, I'm telling you, that will be a detriment to them. Because not everybody in this world likes it. And you've met them, and so have I. <laughs> and I've regretted being sarcastic in that moment. By the way, I've met very few people who can actually take sarcasm as much as they can give it. That's how we know it's just not helpful. Those who rely on sarcasm when communicating their frustrations with their children are just confusing the heck out of them. They don't understand. So drop the sarcasm. So a harsh word is a tone of sarcasm. Number two, a tone of retaliation. A tone of retaliation. This would be considered a harsh word. And even if I say a tone of retaliation, I think that's self-explanatory. Your words should not sound as heavy as a loaded gun feels. Your words should not be weighted with something more than what those words are. When you say something to your child, they shouldn't be thinking, what's coming next? What's all included in what he just said? What did he really mean? We are to be clear, and we not, cannot be clear in a tone of retaliation. Now, oftentimes, fathers respond in a tone of retaliation, and here's why, and I want you to protect yourselves from this. We take a child's sin against us or their failure or whatever, right? They break a house rule or they just let us down with something that we've asked them to not do. We take that far too personally. We take it personal. It's like a personal attack on our character. I'm telling you right now to not make your children's failures a personal attack on you. They're kids. Spoiler alert, they're going to fail. And we know that because we're adults. Ha <laughs> who fail. You get it? We're just really big kids who still fail. <laughs> That's what an adult is. <laughs> so you can't act as if every one of their failures is a personal attack on you. Now, can they personally attack you? Sure, absolutely. That's a different situation, I believe. But a tone of retaliation comes out when we internalize and personalize our kids' failure. Like they did something you asked them a hundred times to stop doing, and they do it, and we go, why do you hate me? And they're like, I don't hate you. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? They just don't get it. 
because they're not personally attacking you. That's not what they're doing. They're just failing, and they need help learning how to do it right. When you, when you correct your children, your words should not sound as heavy as a loaded gun feels. Your eyes should not look as if you just disintegrated them. <laughs> we know that. We call it the, mo- the dad eye in our house. Or the mom eye, right? It's just a look. Now, sometimes those looks are really handy because you can't reach them, and you just need to let them know, if I reach you, it's going to go down. So please stop, right? Sometimes they're really helpful, but not in a way that makes them crumble in fear. A tone of retaliation causes children to fear your presence, right? Which is the opposite of what God the Father teaches us. And remember, throughout this entire series of the Christian home, all we're doing is treating our kids the way God treats us. That's what we're doing. Godly parenting is following Jesus in the presence of kids who you want to follow Jesus. That's what it is. In its most reduced form. So let me put it this way. When you became a Christian, or if you're not, we're praying that you will, the day that you came before your heavenly father and actually confessed your sin and realized, I can't do it on my own. I'm pretty wicked. There's this sin I'm trapped in. It's not helpful. I know it's against what you want from me. I need you to forgive me. I need your help. When you did that, why did you do it? Was it because you were afraid that God was going to smite you and you would just blow up one day, internally combust? Did you hear God the Father saying, you better or else? Did that lead you? To repent, which means to turn around, to walk the other way, to embrace Christ. Is that what happened? I would say it didn't. Because you know what the Bible says? Is that the thing that leads us to repentance, to seek forgiveness from God, is God's loving kindness. That's what brought you all near to God, by the way. Remember, it wasn't because you were amazing, or because you looked great, or because God wanted you on his team. It was God's loving kindness that drew you in. So no matter what failure you have been a part of, large or small, and some of us have failed in drastic ways, let me tell you that there is a God in heaven who is right now drawing you to himself no matter what you've done. That's what the Bible teaches. Friends, this is not religion. This is altogether something different. That there's a loving father in heaven who is drawing you in with his loving kindness. Yes, he has standards. Yes, he doesn't want you to do that but he's drawing you in because he's kind and he's loving. Therefore, a father with his children are to draw them in with their loving kindness and teach them what they've done wrong. So if you say, hey, come over here. And the kids are like, uh-oh, I ain't coming. I'm gonna act like I didn't hear. Or I'm not coming until he asked me 17 times. I mean, if your child is afraid to come before you when they know they've done wrong, You're using a tone of retaliation. They're afraid of how loaded, how heavy your words are. But on the other hand, if when your kids fail, and let me tell you, it's possible. It is possible. We have experienced this, and some of you have as well. That even in their deep failure, and they know they're wrong, if you say, hey, come here, they walk up to you willingly. They're not afraid of what's about to go down. Then that's evidence that they're drawn in by your loving kindness. Make sense? They're drawn in by your loving kindness. So if you don't take their, failings, their failures personally, and if you can draw them with your loving kindness like God does to you, that is a sign that you're starting to put away the tone of retaliation. If you use a tone of retaliation, it's harsh, it's just gonna stir up their anger, and nothing's going to get through. You know that, I know that. When we're angry, nothing gets through. We need time to calm down. Now here's a warning. Harsh words, words with sharp edges, words that are meant to cut, right, to cut at the the kid's heart, they will provoke your children to anger. They will slowly but surely stop responding to your parenting. They're going to grow dull to it. They're going to grow callous to it. They're not going to receive it. I believe the biggest misunderstanding in parenting is this, that correction and discipline must be void of all joy. Because if it's void of all joy, then that child really knows they screwed it up. So I can't make this good. I can't make this joyful. This can't be something where they smirk a little bit. I got to really let them know how frustrated 
I am. I believe that's a problem. I think that's wrong. And not only is it wrong, I believe it's not effective, and I do believe it's not Christian. It's not Christian. Because there is joy in raising kids. And you're a sinner, just like they are. And what they need from you is exactly what you need from God. So again, all you're doing is following Christ in the presence of kids who are following Christ. And so you can't act as if you need to have this tone of retaliation so they really get it. They'll get it. If you stick with it, they will get it. Now I know what you're thinking. They are the ones who disobeyed, right? Why are you putting me in the hot seat? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just the parent. I was amazing getting by my day. And that little kid or whatever, that grown kid did that thing again. Remember, godly parenting is becoming like Jesus in the presence of little ones who are becoming more like Jesus. I can say it again if you'd like me to. I've been saying it for seven weeks. You need to show them what it's like to be transformed like Jesus, into Jesus. And they'll get it. Fathers, today, today is the day you can commit to stop yelling or using harsh words. You will fail. You will be frustrated. You will be tired. You will say the wrong thing. But at least you can point back today and go, nope, I made a commitment that day that I would slow down. I didn't share this with the first service. I forgot. I swiped through it. I'm going to tell it to you. You're, you're my favorite. So, yeah, I know. Don't tell them. Um, here is something I think that will, will help this, actually. So when I say you can commit to stop yelling, using harsh words, a tone of sarcasm, a tone of retaliation, there is a way you can actually do this today, right? And fathers, you, you really got to humble yourself here. You can't do this if you're too prideful. For the next week, that's seven days, when your child needs to be corrected in something, just correct them and stop. That's it. Say, hey, I don't want you to do that. That's not who we are. By the way, that's good language. That's, that's really good language. If you teach your kids that's not who you are, that's not, not what we do, it's far more effective. That's not who we are in our family. That's not who we are, right? We're not about that. And then just stop. And then bring in your wife or whoever's living with you or a trusted family member, a grandma, a grandpa, who can help you give them a consequence or think through what it's going to be. But if you just say, hey, we're, we're not going to do that, then stop. That's it. Because now all you're doing is knowing. They just know they've done something wrong. And I know my father knows it. But what happens, dads? The anger comes when they deny it, when you got to give them a consequence, and when the conversation tears. That's what happens. So what you do is you say, hey, you've done something wrong. I'm gonna, that's all I got for you today. I need you to talk with your mother or your grandmother or your grandfather. I'm going to go talk to them. We'll follow back up with you. If you do that for a week, that cuts off the conversation where you're about to get in this really angry rage. You do that for a week, you build in a habit, and then you start weaving in those other additional parts of the conversation. That's what you can do. Now, I say you can't be prideful in that because you got to be willing to step away and allow somebody else to speak in to your fathering things, all right? That's just something you can do. Now, here is the moment where most of the fathers, and I'm beginning to close, but remember, I went late in the nine, which means I'm going late in the 1045. God bless you. We love Jesus. Now, this is the moment where most of the fathers are going, wait a minute, why you keep talking to us? Uh, there's mothers here, and you're not talking to them. I don't really like this. <laughs> well, here's the deal. There's two reasons why I believe Paul says, not John, Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Here's the first reason. Number one, the Bible always commands to our weakness. The Bible commands to our weakness. So when you receive a command as a, Woman, man, father, mother, child, um, employer, employee. You know, when the Bible speaks to your situation, he's commanding to your weakness. So I believe a father's struggle is provoking. All fathers struggle with provoking their children. That's just what we struggle with. Make sense? Fathers struggle with that. And I believe it's not addressed to mothers because mothers generally don't struggle with that. That's not the mother's struggle with their children. Now, certainly it is in some cases. It's not always that way. But generally, it's the father who's more harsh, who's not understanding, who's trying to use his words to just get this point across. And the mother's going, oh, oh, stop, right? Now, some moms are like super mean. I mean, you know what I mean. But some moms can provoke. But generally speaking, it's the father who struggles with this. Because the mother has an altogether totally different relationship with kids. Fathers, the mother of your children 
has a relationship with your kids that you will absolutely never understand. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's amazing. They get to have the babies. They don't like it in the moment, but I think they like it afterwards. But anyway, that's what they get. It's just this amazing thing that they get. We don't always understand it. It's an altogether other relationship. Mothers are designed to nurture and to love and to include. Fathers struggle with provoking. That's the first reason the Bible always commands to our weakness. Which is, by the way, why Paul says, wives submit and husbands love. Why does he say that? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, the battle of the sexes began. (laughs) Wives don't want to submit and husbands don't want to love. It's both their weakness. And by the way, children obey. What do you think the children's weakness is? Obedience. So the Bible commands to our weaknesses. So we should take that seriously. Number two, and now I really, fathers, I want you to hear this. Fathers are responsible for the culture in their home. They are responsible. I believe God will hold you accountable for the gifts that he has given you. First, and the woman he sent to you, because you don't deserve her, so stop acting like it. She was a gift. And the children he's blessed you with. We should really take that approach in our, in our lives. I cannot believe God gave me five humans. I mean, that's my story, right? Not only has he kept me alive over all the stuff that I've done, but he gave me five more people to be accountable for. Six and a dog. There's a lot going on there. Fathers are responsible for the culture in their home. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what he says. Don't provoke, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's the command given to you. Don't run and hide from this. Don't be the lazy Larry. And there are no Larrys in this service or this church, so I can use that as an example. Lazy Larrys are basically the guys who say, I've done enough. I've done my share. I get to do what I want to do. I'm going to emotionally check out. I need some me time. If you're a dude, don't ever say that around me, okay? You don't get me time. You got a job? Fantastic. You got a family? You got a second full-time job? Get busy. It is what it is. Dudes go to bed tired, exhausted. If you go to bed tired, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I think it's the best feeling in the world to go to bed completely exhausted, and you should too. So whether you work or not, you pull in that driveway, you take two seconds to remember who you are, where you are, and you walk into the home, and you have a full-time job to do. And that family deserves just as much as attention They deserve all that attention, the same attention you just gave at your job. I know it's tough, but it's our calling. You're responsible for the culture in your home, so don't run and hide from it. Don't exist in the shadows, not in the background. Be present, be available, be loving, be vocal. In a world where so many men are having kids, we need more fathers, right? We need more fathers. We need more fathers. Mothers, encourage your fathers to lead. Do not assume the position of father if a father is present. We already know you disagree with what we're doing. (laughs) That's kind of inherent, but you should work on it and go back into the fight together. Encourage him to grow in the way he communicates. Lead with grace. Cheer him on. Don't make him look like a fool because he screwed up yet again. Now, that's side A, all right? That's things to stop doing. That's just one proverb. If you read Proverbs, please get into that this week. Just keep reading it over and over again. That's side A of things you can stop doing, right? We got that. Now there's a side B. Side B is what a father should be busy doing and joyfully doing with his children. Side B is this long list of things that you're to be actively doing with your children. And the first one is this, teaching them about God. Teaching them about God. There's this amazing set of verses in Deuteronomy. That's in the Old Testament, way back. God saves his people from Egypt, right? They go through the water, dry land. There's a big movie about that, right? Moses puts up his arms. The waters part. God's people go through, and he meets with them. He gives them his law. God tells them who he is. He tells them who he wants them to be. And then he says this in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Great. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Basically, every day, you have an unending opportunity to teach your children about the God you worship. Tell them, tell them, tell them, tell them. 
When you're outside and you're enjoying yourself, say, huh, isn't creation amazing? Can you believe that God made snow? Now, we don't like dirty snow. We like the white snow. But can you believe it? Can you believe he made snow? Can you believe that we live in this house? Isn't this amazing? And when they're like, yeah, it's so cool, right? They're going to start doing that. They're going to start realizing who God is and who your God is. And it's that simple to bring God into the conversation. Fathers, God has blessed you with children, so you should teach them about him. They need to know about the God who is changing their, his life, your life. Because the danger is this, is this. If you're a Christian father and you do not teach your children about God, they will grow into adults who wonder why you did not love them enough to tell them. Listen, we have an amazing group of people right below us. And they shepherd and teach and sing and play and eat Cheerios with and drink water with and hold babies every Sunday. That's an amazing group of people. Amen? There's an amazing group of people down there. And some of you are part of that team. It's not their job to teach them the ultimate truth about God. We do what we can, but it's not our responsibility. Our job as a church was not to take your kids and teach them about God. It's your job. It's your first responsibility. We just back you up. <laughs> we just go, huh, I guess dad's not crazy. Right, because we believe it too. Right? We're just your validation. Fathers, teach your kids about God. Don't bring them to church on Sunday, and then Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, say nothing. Teach them about God. They need to know your story in an age-appropriate fashion of what God has done in your life. They need to know that. They need to know who you once were without all the gritty details because you can save that for later. They don't need that. They need to know what God has done in your life. They need to know why you're a different man today. They need to know who you hope to be in the future. They need to know all of that. And they need to hear it over and over and over again because when they do, they will see that there's hope for them too. They'll see that. So teach them about God. Number two, teach your children to work Teach them to work. Proverbs 10, verses 4 and 5. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during the harvest is a disgraceful son. There's another proverb that basically explains that this guy, the son, is so lazy that there's the guac and there's the chips, and he can dip the chip, but he's so lazy he can't even get the chip to his mouth. He's not willing to go through that much effort. He needs somebody to pour it all in there. Teach children to work. When a child is young, give them age-appropriate work to do so they understand the way God has designed this world. Work is not a curse. Work was a part of the garden before sin even entered. We tend the field. We work the ground. We work. God has given us the blessing to do things with our hands. All of you have a skill and you're using it. You're earning because of it. That's an amazing thing. Teach them who are given to your care the same thing. And now some of you actually overthink this. You're like, you're right. Let's leave right now. I got a bunch of jobs, <laughs> right? Chore chart, here it comes, right? And you're like, got them all there in the living room. It's all this detailed plan of what all the three-year-olds are going to do tomorrow. <laughs> you're not getting it done. Because they're going to go, yeah, I'll pick that book up. Oh, Legos, you know? That's just basically what's going to happen. But age-appropriate work needs to be done. From the age of two and a half to three and a half and so on, you can give that two or three-year-old one thing to do every day, even if it's putting this box here over there, even if it's putting these plates on the table. Boom. You know how they'd be like, look what I just did, right? And what do we do? Oh, you're so awesome, right? They love that stuff. It can be as small as that. But you know what? That three-year-old notes every single day, that's my responsibility. And you know what? That builds in them something amazing. Let me tell you what provoking children looks like if you don't do these things. The 19-year-old who just got fired for the third time for being late isn't angry at the boss who fired them. Well, they kind of are, but not really. They're not angry at their friends who are succeeding. They kind of are, but not really. They're angry at the father who never showed them how to get up and do anything. Don't provoke your children to anger. That's part of provoking. It's like me with hunting. Why didn't you show me that I want to kill a deer? What if zombies come and I got to kill food to eat? That's what I'm always thinking about. Like, what would I do? I got to feed myself and now I can't. I got to hang out with Matt. I got to eat all his food. And it's not just me. There's seven of us, right? So he's got a lot of deer to kill. But 
it's the same, it's the same scenario. Why didn't my dad show me this? They're going to be angry with you. Now, are some kids really difficult to teach? Absolutely. Is it always the truth? No. You could work really hard and lay down your life, and your kids still act a certain way. It's not a given promise. But generally, if you don't want to provoke your adult children to anger, do your best today to show them what you know. That's all you're doing. You're showing them what you know. Don't withhold that from them. Number three, teach your children how to build healthy relationships. Okay? Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of the fool suffers harm. Whoever walks with the wise become wise, but the companion of the fool suffers harm. If you allow your children to wander off with young people who do not know where wisdom is found, I will guarantee you, your young people will end up where wisdom is not found. It's just how it's going to work. And this is scary, and it's dangerous. And at some point, they're going to leave the nest, and you have no control. We all get that. But you can do your best today to show them where wisdom is found. Some of you, for the first time, are changing an entire family legacy by following Christ. And I think that is the most amazing thing. That's what I loved about starting this church. That people who receive Christ for the first time are looking back and going, I wish my grandfather's grandfather, grandfather, and grandmother had this. But you know what? They didn't. But you do. And your children's children, children's children could benefit from this. Could live a new life. It's such an amazing thing. You're rewriting your entire family history. And God does that work. That's what he's busy doing all the time. Show them where wisdom is found. Show them the difference between wise and unwise. Show them who a fool is. It's okay to do. And show them who a wise person is. And say, fools sometimes are fun and crazy, but they're fools. <laughs> fools are fun on Friday night for an hour, but not Monday through Sunday. They're not fun. They will destroy you. You got to show them how to build healthy relationships. All right, you've had enough. I'm going to close. I want to give Father something to think about, and then I'm going to pray. We're going to observe communion. You'll give us all your money. You'll go home. All right. That was a joke. Let me close with this. What a Christian hears and then receives as a blessing, the non-Christian hears and rejects as an attack on their pride. I actually never preach thinking that everyone here is actually a converted Christian. Because having Christian information does not lead to Christian transformation. It's not the same. It's necessary, but it's not the same. There are fathers in here who know a bunch of stuff about Jesus and God. They have yet to submit their lives to his rule and authority. Let me tell you, Jesus is a king, and he's coming back with a sword, and he's a general, and he's going to judge every sinner, and he's more powerful than you. You cannot take him, bend the knee today. That's my call to you. Bend the knee to Christ. Make him the Lord of your life. He gets control of all things. He gets to tell you what to do because he's a good God and he's a good king. What I don't want fathers to do is just have a bunch of more information. I want them to be transformed by what Paul is saying and what the writer of Proverbs is saying. I want you to actually use it and see the blessing in it. I want you to realize that if you truly did commit to not retaliating with your words, that even three days from today, your home is will. Let me guarantee you, will look different. It will. But you see, you have to receive this as transformative, not just informative. I love sharing things with you about the Bible. You know what I love more? Are the stories you tell me on Tuesday. And I don't take credit for that. I'm a nobody. Jesus is everybody. He's everything. And he's calling you to be transformed, not just informed, okay? Fathers, have you been made new by the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he paid for your sin, he rose from the dead to secure your new life. And that when you believe and trust in that, you will never taste death. Your sins are forgiven. You walk in newness of life. You've been given the spirit of God which is indwelling your heart and your mind. You're a new creature. You're his. You're part of his kingdom. Have you received that gospel or do you just know about it? There's a difference. Have you humbled yourself before the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Are you following Christ or asking him to follow you? Are you committed to being transformed into who he's already told you he wants you to be? 
It's already in here. We read about it and think about it every Sunday. God is creating a people for himself to be a light in the world. And the way you treat your children, fathers, let me tell you, is a bright light in a very dark and dying world. That's why the world needs more fathers, fathers who are under the authority of Christ. Let me say this. Your kids will not respect your authority if they think you have no authority. Make sense? Your kids won't understand your authority unless they know dad is under authority of God. They need to know that. Some of our minds are so full of Christian information, but we're just completely void of Christian transformation. So fathers, men who hope to be fathers, listen up. Follow Christ. Allow him to transform your life, and I believe it will be a blessing to your family. The world does not need more men who have children. The world needs more fathers. And let me end with this. This true spiritual test of a man is not the way he works or what he earns or what he does here at church or how he looks or how he shovels his snow or cuts his grass or trims the bushes or shoots a bow and arrow or kills a deer. A true spiritual test of a man is only this. It's most clearly seen now he treats his wife and his children. 